Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Welcome back to Frictionless Marketing. Grant Farhall has been with Getty Images for 10 years, the last two as Chief Product Officer. Earlier, he worked for Rogers Communications as a broadcaster newsroom assistant at a radio station, CFFR. Prior to that, Grant was a studio manager for Evolves Media Inc. Gene Foca has been with Getty Images since 2017. In his role as chief marketing officer, he reports directly to the CEO and serves on the executive committee that oversees the brand's global marketing and communications efforts. Before joining Getty, Gene was senior VP of marketing for Fresh Direct. Before that, he spent four years with Amazon, ultimately rising to the post of senior director of marketing. In this interview with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer, Grant and Gene focused their thoughts on the merging of marketing and product teams, data-driven visual content procurement, the trust-damaging impact of deepfake technology, and what Getty's acquisition of free photo source Unsplash might mean for the future of creatives. Without further ado, here are Grant Farhall and Gene Foca from Getty Images in conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer. Hello and welcome back to Frictionless Marketing. This is Paul Dyer, CEO at Lippy Taylor Group. I'm joined here today by two guests, both with Getty Images. First, we have Gene Foca, who is Chief Marketing Officer, and sitting on his right on my Zoom screen is Grant Farhall, Chief Product Officer. Gene and Grant, thanks for joining us here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, I thought we could start, um, and there's a lot of interesting places we're going to be able to go with this conversation, but I thought we would start by just jumping right into, Gene, you have some, you know, some strong uh, perspective on um, the way marketing is evolving as an industry and the way brand marketing is evolving. And, you know, I would love to just dive into, you know, what is it you see that maybe um, today's marketers are missing? Well, uh, my read of the media Paul suggests that there's a lot of marketers who um, are concerned about um, a how data-driven marketing seems to be becoming, um, and and b uh, there seems to be a concern about what marketers need to be uh, to become or need to do more of to be more relevant in the management team or in the C-suite. And I frankly don't see that much change. Uh, over time in those things at all. I think that um, marketers need to be collaborative. They need to understand first and foremost, the business model of the business. And I think too many marketers were perhaps guilty of not understanding the, the business model and instead acting like a cost center within the business model. I think marketers need to understand the business model. And I think um, marketers have always needed within that context to use data to help work with other departments like the product department, um, particularly if your point of sale is through a website or a mobile application, to use data to build a customer journey and support a value proposition so that the entirety of the customer journey is as friction-free as possible and and delightful for the customer, so. I I mean, obviously I love the friction-free angle. it's interesting, you know, you being Getty Images, which also, of course, uh, um, comes with iStock and, and Unsplash. Um, 
it does feel like visual content was sort of the last holdout of the you know data analysis, data-driven revolution, and yet we're there now, right? Yeah, I mean, for sure, I think we're there now with with visual content. I think where that is playing into things is more people are using visual content and they want to feel like they're making the right choices. They're trying to maximize their their market spend and their market efficiency. And therefore, knowing what visuals are going to resonate, knowing what visuals are going to allow them to communicate the right message in the right way, knowing what visuals will help them break through what is a busy world all around us now, where we're confronted with visuals and photos and video everywhere. How are you going to cut through that? I think particularly when you think about the fact that more and more smaller businesses are now doing this work and they need to really make sure that they're efficient in their marketing spend. They don't have a lot of dollars to play with. So that selection process of what creative to to use and what visual support that, they want to feel confident in that. And I think they, they believe, and rightly so, that data can play a part in that. But how do you give them that information? How do they access that data in a consumable way that's relevant to their business? Because the danger of data can also be that it's just too aggregated. It's mm-hmm. like... Images with people click on images with dogs more than images with cats. Okay. Does that apply to my specific business? Maybe, maybe not. But those type of really big insights aren't necessarily helpful for someone who's trying to advertise uh, their coffee shop in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Yeah. So how do you make that data work? I think is one of the big questions. I, I do think though, Paul, that the one, one thing I'll add to, to Grant's point I think that actually Getty Images has been different than other players um, in the visual content space for quite a while in a couple of very specific ways. One, Getty Images has always had an expert team of global creative professionals on staff who are comprised of former um, visual content creators themselves, anthropologists, um, data scientists, and these people are expert in in visual content creation. And we've always been exceedingly good at working with contributors to give them direction and advice that, frankly, other players in the visual content world don't do because they don't have teams like we have. On top of that, for some time, we've been using behind the scenes a very detailed set um, and big set of, of search data and other data to help power and support some of the guidance and advice um, that we've given. So I think we have been somewhat different through our creative team um, and through our more current visual GPS research in, in providing that guidance, not only to client customers, but to contributors who work with us. Well, I think that's a great point, and it's, and it's a more global point than just Getty Images, and it's great that you offer that. But you, you both touched on sort of important areas of the modern discussion about big data and things like that, where you know I'm of the belief, having worked with hundreds of big data projects, that you almost never find an insight in big data. You have to make it small to be able to find the insight, um, to Grant's point. And then 
you know, Gene, where you're going there, I mean, it's the, the value of expertise and, you know, good old fashioned experience and wisdom when you're actually analyzing the data is invaluable and often under um, appreciated. Um, you know, we talk about it, like the difference between hiring an analyst and giving them a, you know, something to go sift through the river and try and find gold versus having a gemologist do it, you know, and you're saying, uh, well, at Getty Images, we have a lot of gemologists in addition to a lot of data. We do. And and it just so happens that our gemologists have been with us for a very long time and have compiled a vast amount of information. So when you combine that with years of data, it's a very, very powerful information set. You know, people like Dr. Rebecca Swift and Andy Saunders and you know, and that doesn't even touch on, um, you know, our editorial um, staff and our photography team who are frankly second to none. And so it's it's a lot of valuable information to provide um, clients and customers. Mm-hmm. I, I want to I remark on something that our listeners weren't able to see because I can see you and they can't, right? So I asked a question a minute ago and, <clears throat> excuse me, Gene, you, you, um, visually signaled and said, Grant, this one's yours, um, and passed the baton. And what's really interesting is here we are, we have a chief marketing officer, a chief product officer, and both of those things used to be marketing, right? Marketing, our four Ps, price, product, place, promotion, right, would have all just been considered one thing. And now, of course, we're starting to specialize and we're starting to have, say that these things are too important and should be you know, uh, peers and partners and those kinds of things. Um, it was really, first of all, remarkable to just see the interaction between you and how how natural that was. But I'm curious, you know, if maybe you want to reflect a little bit on on how you feel like that's um, that evolution is happening in our industry. I, I think there's a couple things. I think I think there's the evolution of of what's happening between product and marketing and the blurring of lines. And I'll speak to that. I also think there's the evolution of being more um, open in conversations and and not always being the first person to reply and sometimes waiting to see what someone else might say. I mean, that that's a, a muscle that we're practicing at Getty Images overall, where, you know, you take a moment and, and give room for others to say something first. And I, so I think you saw a bit of that as well. But I, but I think when you talk about marketing and product, what I would say commenting from a product point of view is product is still a discipline that means very different things in very different places and each company has their own perspective on what product management is and how they approach it and the role it serves. Uh, So we can only look at it from the point of view as what does it mean at Getty Images? I'll start by saying what it's not, which is sort of that traditional product management positioning as the mini CEO, where product and product managers had a high level of decision-making authority. Again, that term mini CEO. And that's not how we look at product. The way I look at product is that it is a highly collaborative part of the organization and your product managers should be understanding the customer first and foremost, understanding the market that we compete in and how we're lined up against the, our competitors and bringing forward the most meaningful problems to solve and or the most meaningful opportunities to chase. And then provide all that information and context with a cross-functional group and in an environment where the right solution can come forth, regardless of where it comes from. The product manager does not have to be the person that has the big idea. It's providing the information and the ability 
for that right solution to be brought forward from wherever it lives, and then helping to bring that idea to life. Now, that may sound a little squishy, but that's how we frame it, and that's how we approach it. So then you think about, well, then what does that mean between product and marketing? That allows product and marketing to work hand in hand as true partners and truly collaborative, because we don't take hard stances and say, well, the website is owned by product management. No, the website is both the tool our customers are using, and it's also arguably our most communication, most important communication channel. So it has to be able to do both those things, which means you have to be able to work across these groups. So that gives you some sense of like how we think about it. I don't know if I answered your question, but. Yeah, I, I agree um, with what Grant said, Paul. And, and I, I also think, you know, you started off by saying product price, place, promotion, those used to be the quote unquote domain of marketing. How has marketing and product evolved? What's changed? And, and I would say a lot and very little. And what I mean by that is that the academic subject of marketing has not changed at all. Those things all still fall under marketing. It's just that um, we have to be less hung up as marketers about what we control on our own in a silo. And we instead have to look at marketing through the lens of the customer and focus on um, how to build a value proposition and support that customer journey. And it just so happens in many modern organizations, and this is certainly in the case in our organization, that we do that collaboratively with product and technology because that's how marketing is supported. And by the way, Editorial and content plays a role in that, and other departments do as well. So marketing as, an, as sort of an academic discipline or a subject matter doesn't sit under just a marketing department. The brand is built by a number of different departments um, supporting marketing. And, it, and in our company, two of the key departments that do that are product and marketing. I think that makes a lot of sense. And and I, I appreciate sort of the segue into more of the brand building um, side of this um, in particular. So, so when did, um, and let me just clarify, I guess I should have looked this up ahead of time. When did Getty close its acquisition of Unsplash? It was, it was in the um, late spring of, of 2021. Okay. So it's recent. It's recent. That's what I thought. So um so Unsplash, I would say, you know, initially it sort of positioned itself as almost like an anti-iStock or an anti-Getty, right? And now it's really a really important part and sort of window into the overall um, portfolio for people in the creative industry, I would say. I'm curious how you're managing that transition and how you think about you know, bringing these two brands together that do have very different DNA. Well, Interestingly, Grant can talk rather intimately about the DNA of iStock because um, he worked with iStock uh, prior to working with, with Getty Images. I, I'm not sure that Unsplash necessarily, at least to the you know, customer base out in the world, presented themselves as the anti-iStock. I think once upon a time, iStock was very much like, in some respects, um, what Un Unsplash is in this in this stage of their journey. Uh, the way we look at Unsplash is that it helps complete the way we service the entire creative economy. So if you think about it, Paul, 
on the Getty Images brand side, it's it's almost a visual content as service model where we serve large global organizations through personalized registration on, on you know, unlimited seats. Customers go in and they access um, packages of content largely delivered through subscriptions of varying degrees of complexity with complete rights and support and all the rest. Then below that model, we have iStock, which is an e-commerce driven model, um, largely driven by paid digital marketing and search engine optimization. And it's squarely targeted at global SMBs and SMEs um, that want to do um, self-service and basically access visual content as they would other products and services they need, largely without sales touch, because Getty Images is supported by a global sales team and a global customer service team and a global customer success team. They, With iStock, customers want to um, really work on an e-commerce basis, largely without touch, with perhaps more limited but still very attractive protections and great deep content. And Unsplash um, allows us to reach the long tail of the creative economy because we know globally that no matter the size of an organization, whether it's one person or a 10,000-person corporation, that search for visual content largely starts in the same places and all organizations of all sizes go to free content sites. And Unsplash is one of the best and largest free content sites. And we're in the process of integrating that into our, into our food chain, you know, as we speak. So I have to say, Gene, that was a very clear explanation. It's almost like you're in charge of marketing for these three organizations. But three brands. <laughs> Paul, Paul, I would add something there that I, that I think builds off what Gene was describing, which is there's also a, something that's very common to all three brands and common to Unsplash. And one of the reasons why I think we found an opportunity to bring the companies together, which is a belief that content matters and the quality of the content matters. So something that is shared between GettyImages.com, iStock, and Unsplash is that all three are sources of differentiated content of contemporary visuals that you cannot find anywhere else. And something that the Unsplash team did with their community is build out a very impressive catalog of strong visuals that stand out from what you might see from other sites that offer free content. So there was that common ground great, great point. around yeah. that content matters because that's Getty Images that's what that's it's all about content that's, yep, that's that what's our focus it right there so we found that with with unsplash and the unsplash founders is that shared belief and that underpins that partnership yeah and i think it also goes back to your earlier point gene about expertise and the sort of just that visual eye I mean, the unsplash team did a great job of finding cool content which is kind of a difficult art <laughs> um so another um Really important, really relevant topic today. Obviously, DEI is a central theme in business um, for all of your clients, uh, as well as I'm sure for your organization. Um, we read about your recent GLAD partnership. Um, would love to hear more about how that came about, if you can share some of that. Um, and then also just any thoughts that you may have had or discussions you've had about the role Getty Images can play in increasing representation um, in advertising, marketing content, you know, those kinds of things. Well, you know, Grant touched on the importance of 
the quality and breadth and depth of the content we deliver across the three brands. And certainly, you know, going all the way up to Getty Images where we have um, exclusive relationships for, for a lot of high quality content. It's, it's really, really important to us. Uh, our, our mission is to move the world. That's, that's how we view our mission as a visual content company. And part and parcel to that is, is not only what our editorial team does in documenting events of the world, um, for instance, what's going on in the Ukraine right now, um, which is so horrendous, but it's to move the world and portray the world as it really is and make sure that we're representing um, different people the way they should be represented. And what we take a lot of pride in is that um, through our creative expertise, we work with organizations to guide their visual content choices so that um, in all forms of marketing communication, visual content is representing better and therefore allowing our customers to have greater impact on their customers and their organization. So the GLAD partnership, um, the partnership with Unilever and Dove for Show Us, our partnerships with uh, AARP, our HBCU um, grants and, and work, all of these partnerships are driven out of a desire to represent people authentically, um, to move the world. And I think um, in different but similar ways, each of those organizations re recognizes both our expertise in doing that and our history in doing that and our uh, leadership in doing those things. That's great to hear. And it's really inspiring, to be honest. You guys play such an important role in every marketing presentation, every ultimate, you know, uh, content that actually sees the light of day um, for you to be, you know, playing that role and in helping increase inclusivity, I think is really good. So thank you. You mentioned, um, obviously, the tragedy in Ukraine. Um, another um, sort of a segue from that, but there was also a, um, a deep fake photo recently surfaced from uh, the Ukraine. It was a fake photograph of a bombing in the Ukraine. It was appeared to be geographically and visually accurate, entirely believable, and yet it had been created through deep fake AI technology. Um, there's a lot of risk, of course, in this creating a crisis of trust, right? In the things that we see visually with our eyes. How are you preparing for this, you know, sort of the war on trust, if you will, or the, the fear that, um, that that could happen in terms of, um, you know, this looming um, impact of AI and deep fake? I, I mean, I think it's a great point. I, I think it's, you know, obviously we have very high editorial standards for that part of our business that we uphold and and require our partners to uphold. But I, I think you're also raising the point that that risk sits on the creative side too. And and generally I would say that I think being a trusted source of safe content and visuals will have even more importance in the future because of this. The, the line between a camera shot image of a real person doing a real thing in a real place is going to become increasingly blurred with, is it real? Is it not? What in that image is real? What has been generated versus shot? Is the person real? Is the environment real? Is the thing in the background real? 
And I think in that world, customers are going to want to know what is real and what is not with clarity. So that's how we're lining up, is make sure that our customers know and are making informed choices and view us as a place where they can do that safely and with clarity. Do we have all the answers on how we will do that in every way? No, but that that's the intent. And I think it is important because, as I say, I think we're going to see the technology continue to develop in a very rapid way. And I think when you start to get to some of those states where that line is blurry, then it becomes more important that it's clear. That isn't to say that customers won't be able to make choices where they are using imagery where either all of it or some of it was not shot with a camera. They do today, right? They're able to take a camera shot image and manipulate it, right? But that is going to become increasingly challenging to understand, again, what is real and what is not. We want to make sure they know that and can make informed choices. That's a, a great answer and I uh, appreciate you going there with us, Grant. I'm curious on a totally different direction now. You guys have, may have may be familiar with Mark Cuban's um, perspective on being told you should follow your passion. And his perspective on that is to paraphrase, uh, he's passionate about basketball, but he's got a one inch vertical. So he was never going to make it as an NBA star. And so you should instead follow what you're good at, right? Um, I'm curious for you two individually, right? Um, were you passionate photographers, uh, you know, growing up, uh, you know, in your lives? Or did you follow what you were good at to arrive here? Or both? Grant's still a passionate <laughs> photographer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th I think a lot of us at Getty Images have some underlying passion for photography and imagery. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hobbyist. I take images of uh, abandoned buildings in the outskirts of Alberta and, and Saskatchewan and the prairies of Canada. Um, you know, so I, I think there's an underlying passion there. Um, you know, when I think about what motivates me, and I think motivation is very different for people. Um, you know, there's a great book by Daniel Pink that breaks it down between autonomy, mastery, and purpose. In that framework, I would say I'm purpose-driven. And, and something that's important to me at Getty Images is what Gene was describing earlier, It's and what you were talking about, which is I think we're doing things that make the world better, including how we represent ourselves in the world including in creative work. I think we're a part of that. So I feel like I'm showing up every day doing something that matters. And that that is important to me. Um, it's also important to me that I work with people that I respect and, and trust and have good relationships with. And I have that at Getty Images. So that's important to me. Did I follow what I'm good at? Not intentionally, to be perfectly honest. But I do think there's something that you're talking about there that I do believe in, which I would slightly reframe is I've given more thought in the call it the second half of my career as to what gives me energy, what makes me feel good and being aware of that, being conscious of that and understanding that about oneself and being okay admitting what doesn't give you energy. Doesn't mean that you get to have a job where hundred percent of the time you're doing things that gives you energy, but I've tried to follow that, which I think is a little different from following your passion or following what, what's, what you're good at but it's the things that make me feel, for lack of a better word, alive. So that's how I think about it. But I think motivation and what drives oneself, it's a very personal thing that we should all be asking ourselves. Yeah, unlike Grant, I, I can't claim that I have ever been a, a, a strong photographer. Um, but, but similarly, I've, as I think um, others look at it, look at, work through the lens of whether you're more missionary or, or mercenary. And, 
and I've always been someone who has to be a significant part focused on missionary. And so for me, the motivation is that um, I've always um, felt a pull to the media and to news and to content and have spent the majority of my career in and out of roles that involve media and news and content, whether it be at Time Warner or Amazon um, and, and now Getty Images. And so um, it, it scratches that that itch for sure. And um, I, I enjoy looking at marketing, as I suggested earlier, through the lens of the business, as opposed to for the sake of marketing itself. And so I, I like the act of working with people to make a business better and stronger and um, have always thought of marketing as just part of a general management discipline. That's interesting. So, um, yeah, I went to business school, I got my MBA, and now I try and convince anybody who asks me about it not to waste their time. But the one thing that I remembered from it that really stuck was there was a book called Level 3 Leadership, and in it, they try to define leadership, and they define it quite simply as leadership is about managing energy first in yourself and then in those around you. And taking your two answers, it really, that was, you know, that's what I heard, right? It was responding to where you get energy and then essentially infusing that into the organization, Gene. Um, so as a, as a wrap up here, we've got, you know, the two of you obviously very successful, very senior, and frankly, have painted a really nice picture about what it's like to be in missionary or purpose-led positions at this stage in your career. So for people who are listening that think, I'd like to get there someday, um, what advice would you give them? Well, my own feeling is my, the advice I would give them um, is to be pa a little bit patient. And what I mean by that is um, it's, it's often the case that younger professionals um, look at the first stages of their career and they dwell on uh, the tasks that they're being asked to do, the endless analysis, um, perhaps the long hours um, in many uh, entry level and first stage roles. And because of those things, they have a hard time stepping back and appreciating and seeing the importance of what they're doing to a wider and bigger business model. And what they assume is that they don't like their work and therefore they have to go follow their quote unquote passion, um, which I think is part of what Mark Cuban is, is getting at when he talks about, about that issue. And I think too many, um, too many people think that they have to jump from the tasks that they believe that they don't like to go do something that, you know, is going to be more satisfying because it's part of their passion. But in every endeavor, in every career, in order to learn the foundations of an organization or a business, you have to work through those stages. You have to do that kind of tedious task work to understand the underpinnings of the business. And that will enable you downstream um, to have a better view of the overall business, how pieces connect. And that's when you really get to exercise more complete thinking and your passion. And so really part of what I would say is be patient. And I'm not suggesting, you know, waste time doing something that makes you unhappy, 
but I'm simply suggesting that um, the path to happiness isn't a light switch, right? It's, you, you have to be willing to work through some, some issues. I, I would offer the following, which is the approach that I have taken in my career has been a few different things, which is number one, be someone that adds value and makes an impact. And then number two, that goes hand in hand with that, be someone that people enjoy working with. And that means you're kind, you're courteous, you're able to participate in discussion and debate, but you do so in a kind and courteous way, uh, that you have a likability to yourself. That you're, for me, I think it's important that you're positive and generally optimistic, not blindly optimistic, but you generally view things and assume good intent and you assume good outcomes. Because if you, ha if you have an impact and you're pleasant to work with, then people are going to want to involve you and you're going to have opportunities to be involved, including in things that you might not have thought you would. And then I think the third component there is leaning in, raising your hand, stepping forward, showing some courage asking the question that no one might be willing to ask, having a view that no one else maybe is willing to express, looking at the business or where you are and saying, what is no one looking at or what needs more attention? And don't ask for permission, just go and start doing it, learning about it, be the expert in that area that needs an expert. And that again will create opportunities for yourself. There's a bit of it which is like really owning your own career development and your own skill development. I think a lot of companies, there's always more work than there are enough people to do it. So where are those, where are those soft spots that you can step into? And th those are the three things that, and you know, yeah, you have to have a little bit of luck too. What but, Grant but just said, me well. by the way, about um, being someone who people like to work with is so critically important and, and um, often undervalued. That can get you so much further than being the smartest person in the room. And, you know, as someone who in his career has sometimes been guilty of maybe being the smartest person in the room, but not so enjoyable to work with in the room, I can tell you that it's much more important um, to figure out how to um, pull people in um, to embrace your ideas rather than to tell them why your idea is the best idea. Um, so there's just no two ways about it. Um, you can't be successful in the world of business or, or in any group endeavor if people do not enjoy working with you and being around you. And I think one other piece, too, is being functionally expert in something. And so it's really, really important as a professional and ultimately as a leader, because you're going to be leading people at times who are more functionally expert in you, than you in, in some areas, but you need to be functionally expert in something um, so that you can roll up your sleeves and earn trust and, and uh, be with your team in a different, in a different kind of way. I think that's that's really important. It's great advice. It reminds me of the old T-shaped person, um, you know, concept. And um, you guys have shared a lot. I think of really good advice there. If we could sort of distill it down, you know, you've got be patient, um, see it through. And while you're here, even if you don't like every task you're performing all day, you should be raising your hand, leaning in, building relationships. 
And at the end of that journey, you're going to look back and realize you went a lot farther than you expected even. So that's great advice, guys. Thank you very much, Gene, Grant. We appreciate you sharing your time and your insights with us here today. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Paul. All right. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Gene Foca and Grant Farhall. Number one, visuals of all mediums are in a crisis of trust. It's becoming ever easier to produce deep fake photos and videos, which is causing consumers of media to question whether anything they're seeing is actually real these days. This represents a trust crisis for visual-based companies and news medias alike. Grant said that part of the response to this emerging crisis of believability must be an insistence that creators of visual content clearly label their works as real or augmented, and if the latter, to identify the CGI elements so that prospective users can exercise informed consent before buying. Beyond that, multiple measures are being taken to ensure that all changes and alterations made to visual files, both video and images, have an indelible record of alterations, all of which will be visible to anybody who has access to the file. Number two, marketing pros must embrace the merging of their discipline and that of product managers. Grant said it once was common for marketing and product development to be completely separate entities that each did its own thing, but more and more they're being pressed to work collaboratively. Consequently, Gene said that marketers have to be less hung up about having control of the things traditionally within their discipline and to instead partner with the product team in order to more successfully support the customer journey. This is a naturally cohesive path forward that integrates marketing insight and consumer demand with product development, enabling insight-based innovation. Number three, in order to rise to a position of leadership in your organization, become better at finding problems and turning yourself into a solutions architect. Both Gene and Grant agreed that people on their way to the top need to be able to play well with others. Additionally, Grant said that ladder climbers should be on the lookout for shortcomings in the organization's current operations, take ownership of them, and figure out how to fix what's broken or not running right. As he said, be the expert in the area that needs an expert. Meanwhile, Gene cautioned against misunderstanding what it means to follow your passion. According to Gene, people too often think that following their passion means they can and should jump from the tasks they don't like to those that they think will be more satisfying. But to understand the underpinnings of the business, you have to first do the tedious menial work. You have to learn how the pieces connect, he said. From there, you start being able to exercise your passion. Anyway, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor, that's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R, and on Twitter at the same handle. To learn more about us, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening to Frictionless Marketing. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. 
You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.